So Exodus chapter 7 is where we are this morning. And as Nathan said, this is going to be a little more difficult passage, a little more difficult story than last week. Last week we talked about how God is the one who knows. As we sang this morning, the battle belongs to the Lord. And so when things aren't going our way, don't seem to be going the way we want them to, we can trust and say, okay, he has the battle plan, I don't. I hope that was an encouraging message to you. And several of you told me that it was, that it hit at just the right time. That's because the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. But today, the things we're going to talk about are very disturbing. They're going to shake us up emotionally, mentally. And it's because we're going to see thousands of people die, including children. And this isn't some dystopian fiction fantasy. This isn't the Hunger Games. This is reality. This actually happened 3,300 years ago. And not only did it happen, it was actually God doing it. You know, one of the things that, one of the mistakes we as Christians make is when we look at a natural disaster in the world and we say, ah, that's the wrath of God. So, you know, there's a hurricane that hits uh, New Orleans. Oh, well, that's because that's such a sinful city. Well, is that big, did the hurricane that hit our city a couple years later, was that because of our sin? You know, you fall into a slippery slope when you say that uh, a dangerous territory, when you say that a tornado in the panhandle or a tsunami in Asia, that that's God doing that. I, frankly, I think that we live in a world that is broken by sin and so bad things happen as a result. And you and I aren't in on what, what things are caused by God and what things aren't. But in this case, we do know. In this case, the Bible tells us these plagues that fall on Egypt, these terrible things that happen are brought by God. And so if you've never read this story before, or if it's been a while, there are a couple of different emotional responses you might be tempted to fall into. One is to look at it and say, well, thank God that I'm a child of God. I don't have to worry about any of this judgment stuff. And while it is true that if you are under the grace of God, you've accepted Christ as your savior, you don't have to worry about your final judgment. You don't have to worry about where your soul is destined to be for all eternity. But this story still applies to us today because we still face consequences for our choices. We still face judgment of various kinds. And there's going to become a point in this service where I'm going to ask you to look inside your heart and see what's going on. The second emotional response you might have, and some of you will, is to look at this and say, my goodness, I had no idea that the God of the Bible was this violent, this ruthless I don't know what to do with that. I thought that Jesus was merciful and kind. How do I reconcile those two things? And, and you're not a bad person if you have those thoughts. In fact, these stories should disturb us. But I want to say, and if I do my job today, you're going to see that the God of Jesus Christ, the God we believe in, the one true God, is not violent or ruthless, that he's, in fact, the only force of unadulterated good in the universe. He is our only hope in a world that is violent, that is ruthless. He is our only hope for salvation. The point of the book of Exodus, though, I just want to remind you every week, is not just a story of some big things that happened a long time ago, and it's not just a story of a group of people who were slaves who got set free. The point of the book of Exodus is God wants people to know him. God wants people to know him as the God who saves. And at the start of the book of Exodus, only the Israelites know who God is. See, there's this concept, ethical monotheism. It's the idea that there is only one God and that that God is good and that he holds people accountable. 
This God actually cares how you treat people, how you, whether you care about poor people or not, and, and whether you pay the people who work for you a living wage, uh, whether you cheat your brother, uh, who you sleep with, how you talk, the way you spend your money. God holds you accountable for all those things. That was a revolutionary concept in the ancient world. Nobody believed that except the Israelites. And at the start of Exodus, it's not real clear how many of them believed. But by the end of Exodus, everyone knows who the God of Israel is. It's the talk of the world because of what's about to happen. Remember the question last week that Pharaoh asked was, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, he's about to find out. Chapters 7 through 11, we won't read all of them, but 7 through 11 are God's answer to that impudent question. So let's start with chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in your hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. So this is the first of 10 plagues that fall upon the land of Egypt over the course of weeks or probably months, maybe even over a year. And it follows a particular pattern that you see develop. So first Moses and Aaron will go to Pharaoh and say, okay, God says, let my people go. When's it going to happen? And Pharaoh will say, not in my lifetime. And they'll say, okay, but if not, here's what's going to happen next. And they'll prophesy the next plague. Pharaoh will say, get out. You're not getting anywhere with me. The plague will fall. Then Pharaoh will repent. He'll call Moses and Aaron and say, I, I was wrong. Would you pray for me to deliver us from this? They'll pray. The plague goes away. And then it all starts over again. Pharaoh never learns. So let's walk through the 10 plagues real briefly, okay? And just imagine that you are the ruler of this nation that's experiencing these plagues. Imagine what you do as the one who is supposed to be in charge. First of all, when the Nile River turns red, and not just the color red, the water of the Nile becomes blood. That is a devastating thing for your world, for your whole country, the Egypt is built on the Nile River. I mean, that's, that's where they get their fresh drinking water from. So now you have to actually, everybody has to dig a, a water well in their backyard or in, in, out in front of their house. You have to scramble for water or you're going to die of thirst. Meanwhile, the fish all die, so the fishing industry is destroyed. So there's unemployed fishermen all over the land. They're talking to Pharaoh saying, how are we supposed to support our families? And then once the Nile goes back to normal, then frogs invade the land. Imagine you, you lift your, your dish to eat your chicken dinner and there's, there's frogs on top of your chicken. You go to take a bath that night and the frogs chase you out of the tub. All night and all day, it never stops. This constant, this constant croaking of frogs. You don't think that's an annoying noise, but just wonder how would it be to hear it constantly? Then the frogs suddenly die and you pile them into these stinking piles and gnats arrive little gnats just buzzing and getting into your nose and your eyes. And every time you take a breath, they go down your throat and make you cough and they're driving you insane. And when the gnats go away, they're replaced 
by flies. So just gnats times 100, right? Just a bigger bug to, to get all over you and, and bite you and, and drive you nuts. And then the flies go away. And suddenly livestock across the country starts to die. There's an epidemic among the pigs, the, the cattle, the sheep, the chickens. And whereas it was hard to do without fresh fish, now you, you have a hard time finding meat of any kind. And besides, the farmers are banging at the door of the palace saying, how are we supposed to plow our fields? All our donkeys are dead. All our oxen are gone. What can you do for them? The epidemic finally abates, but you wake up the next day with boils covering you, painful sores from head to foot. You can't even get out of bed, and even bed doesn't feel good because whatever surface whatever side of your body you lay upon, it hurts. And the people aren't coming to gripe anymore because they can't get out of bed either, but you can hear them groaning through your open window. And then finally your skin clears up, but not long after there's this big thunderstorm that swoops in with dropping these massive hailstones that strip the leaves off every tree and and destroy all the grain that's in the field. And you say to yourself, well, the last hope we have is the wheat hasn't budded yet. So if we can just keep ourselves alive, we just keep from starving to death before the the wheat buds and, and we have wheat harvest, we can survive. But once the wheat matures, you see this dark cloud on the horizon. And when it arrives, it's a plague of locusts that that eat every green thing that's left, every blade of grass, every remaining leaf, and every bit of your wheat harvest. And then one day it's dark. The sun doesn't rise at all. For three days, there's darkness. Darkness that can't just be seen, but felt in your soul. A depression so deep, you don't know if you want to go on living. And finally, the sun comes out again, but then you wake up and your firstborn son is dead. The heir to the throne, the one who is to be the next Pharaoh, has died in the night. And you hear the mourning and the wailing across the country as households all across that city have experienced the same thing. And you call Moses and Aaron in and you say, listen, I've got nothing left. Leave this place and never come back. Your economy's in shambles. Your social network is destroyed. The people hate you now that once revered you. You don't want anything to do with the Israelites anymore. And remember, the point of all of this was to make God known. So what is God saying? What is God trying to teach us through these stories, through these plagues? Three things I can see in this story that I want us to look at. Number one, he is the righteous judge. And that's not language we like to use today. We want to think about Jesus and his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his compassion, all of which are true. And we can't reconcile that with a God of wrath and judgment. How can both be true? And I'm here to tell you, a God without wrath, a God without judgment, is not a God worth worshiping. And it's not a God that you want to put your trust in. You see, one of the things that trips us up is we hear wrath and we think of human anger. And can I just testify that I'm an idiot when I get angry? I, I, if I look down through the course of my life, maybe two or three times in my life have I been justified in getting angry. Every other time it's something like a guy cuts me off in traffic Uh, The ref makes a bad call against my team, and every call against my team is a bad call, right? Carrie says something, and I take it the wrong way. One of the kids gets on my nerves. Some church member criticizes me, and it hurts my feelings. These are the things that I get angry about. 
And I never, I ne- even when I'm justified, I never behave in a way that I'm later proud of when I'm angry because anger changes your character. Anger makes you a very different person. You do and say things you wouldn't ordinarily do or say. But God's not like us. I know there's some language in Scripture that makes it sound like God experiences the emotion of anger like we do. But if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you see that those are just taken out of context, that that's just the human limitations of of using human language to describe an infinite God. Because God is not like us. His ways are not like us. His thoughts are not like ours. And that means He doesn't experience the emotion of anger. He doesn't blow His top. He doesn't lose control. Thank God. God, literally, he never loses control. His wrath is not an emotion he feels. His wrath is instead a condition. It is a reality. It's his settled opposition to evil. Let me put that into English. God's wrath means there is always consequence for evil. That means that no one ever fully, finally gets away with anything. And when I said earlier that you don't want a God without wrath, let me, let me try to explain or illustrate why. If the President of the United States did nothing when our nation was attacked, did not retaliate, did not defend, just let our enemy rampage up and down our coasts and through our, our territory, killing as many as he wanted, as they wanted, what would you think of that president? Would you reelect him? I doubt it. If there was a judge who had a murderer before him accused of a crime and they had video evidence that it was committed, everyone knew he was guilty and the judge said, I'm going to let you go with no penalty at all. Would that be justice? Of course not. If you, if you knew a man who watched as his wife was beaten and assaulted by thugs and did nothing to defend her and then afterwards said, well, honey, you must have done something to set them off. Would you want that? man to be married to your sister or your daughter? Of course not. It's not that we're violent people by nature. It's that we are born with an idea that evil demands a response, that evil demands justice. And when there's not justice, we feel it in our hearts because we're made in the image of a God who is a righteous judge. And God's wrath means ultimately there will be justice for every evil thing that takes place. Part of what's happening in the book of Exodus is this man Pharaoh has ruled for years. He's done incredibly, unspeakably evil things, and now he is getting what he deserves. God even says so in a couple of weeks when we look at the story of the parting of the Red Sea. It's in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 4 says this. God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, I'm giving Pharaoh what he deserves. I am pouring out upon him the, the just harvest for what he has sown. And I know, I know a lot of us grew up watching that movie, The Ten Commandments. It comes on ABC every year at Easter. My dad was actually a kid in school the first year that movie came out. And would you believe the school board in Yoakum, Texas, where we grew up, actually canceled school that day so everybody could go see the movie if they wanted to. That shows you how times have changed. And it is a great movie. Uh, it still holds up. The, the special effects are pretty good for being 70-something years old. And, and the performances are great. Pharaoh is played by Yul Brenner. Yul Brenner is one of the great actors of, the, of that era. He was actually Russian by birth, handsome guy. He, he had a shaved head 50 years before that was cool, and he made it look good. 
and he had this awesome voice. You know, the Russian uh, accent kind of came out and he'd say, why do you defy me, Moses? It was really cool, okay? And so we watched this movie and we know he's supposed to be the bad guy, but we don't want bad things to happen to him. And you got to get that out of your mind when you read this story. Because the actual Pharaoh was a sociopath. The actual Pharaoh was a genocidal dictator who was personally responsible for the deaths of thousands of innocent people and never lost sleep over it. This was a man who did not care that he was building the fortunes of an empire on the backs of slaves. And you notice that the first and the last of the 10 plagues are direct references to atrocities committed by Egypt. When the, when the Nile turns to blood, well, that's where the Israelite children were drowned. When the firstborn of the Egyptians die, that's God saying, you did this to my people. So this is justice that's happening. And by the way, we don't see this yet. It doesn't come out until later. But the Israelites, on the day they leave, the Egyptian people are so glad to see them go. They say, here, take our silver and our gold and our clothes and our food. Here, just take everything you need. We don't want you to come back. And so the Israelites, who were slaves one day, walk away not only free, but wealthy. And that's the way God's justice works. People who are victimized get justice in the end. People who have been trampled upon end up on top. The, the last are first and the first are last. And if you're sitting there saying, hey, I wish that would happen right now. Well, good, because it will. You just need to trust and you just, to, you just need to wait. God's justice is always on time. He is the righteous judge. Number two, he is the one and only. He is the only God. In Exodus 12, verse 12, he tells, he telegraphs everything. He says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Egypt, like most nations, worshiped a whole pantheon of gods. They thought that every function of society was ruled by some particular God. And so they prayed to Hopi to make sure that the, the Nile River would be, would be prosperous for them. But when the Nile turned red, Hopi couldn't help them. They prayed to a God named Min, M-I-N, as their God of fertility and, and of abundance, of harvest. But when the crops died, when the animals passed away, Min was nowhere to be found. They prayed to Ra. He was supposed to be the creator God, the God of the sun. But on those three days of darkness, well, God uncreated, didn't he? And Ra was nowhere to be found. So what God is doing He's not just delivering Israel from slavery. He is speaking to the Egyptians and saying, don't you see your gods aren't real, but I am. Turn away from these false gods that have been leading you astray and turn to me. Now, I want to point something out that you may have noticed, but probably not. Most of the plagues, all but the first and the last, most of the plagues are natural events. They're things that actually happen in nature. There really are big hailstorms sometimes. Sometimes there are too many frogs or too many flies or too many gnats. Sometimes people wake up and they're covered in sores. These are not unnatural things. They're things that happen in nature. So why did God do that? Why did God do eight out of the 10 plagues be something that a skeptic could just explain away as saying, well, we're just having a really tough time with the weather. I don't know because the Bible doesn't say, but here's my theory. I think it's because that's how God's wrath tends to work. 
We have this misconception that the wrath of God is like, oh, if I say something bad that's untrue, he's going to strike me with lightning. Or uh, if I commit a sin, he's going to turn me into a billy goat or, you know, I'll drop a piano on my head. But I think usually the wrath of God is simply him saying, okay, is that what you want? All right. Well, here's what's going to happen then. If, if you don't say, Lord, thy will be done, the, in the end, God's going to say, all right, then have it your way. And he's going to let you experience the natural fruits of your bad choices. See, at the root of it, all sin is really idolatry. All sin is us wanting to create a God in our image, wanting to create things the way we want them to be. And when we pursue things other than God as our ultimate thing, God says, I will let you do that. I will not stop you because you are your own person. I will let you experience exactly where that God is going to take you. So here's how I think that looks in our lives. Let's just use me as an example. If I decided, for instance, that I would worship the God of success, in essence, if being a successful pastor, building a great big church and everyone thinking I'm great, if that becomes my number one thing, it's not like God's going to strike me with lightning, but instead I'm going to wake up one day and realize I've destroyed my family because I cared more about my career than them. I didn't have time for them. I didn't love them. I, didn't, I wasn't there for them. And ultimately, they're going to turn their backs on me because they're not loved. God didn't do that. I did that. But God allowed it to happen so that I would see this is what happens when you put success ahead of me. If my highest goal becomes, I need your approval. I need everybody to like me and think I'm a great guy. If I build my life on winning the affection of everyone I know, then I'm going to live a life of crippling anxiety, ulcers, high blood pressure, heartache, because the burden of keeping everyone happy is too much to bear. God didn't do that to me. I did that to me. If my ultimate thing becomes my own political ideology, if I say nothing matters more than my side winning, then I'm going, become, I'm going to become a bitter and hateful person who anybody who thinks differently than me is my enemy. And I'm going to see my own kids, my grandkids, if there ever are any, turn away from the faith because they're going to say, I don't want that. If that's what it means to be a Christian, I want nothing to do with it. And we see that happening in Christian families all over America today because politics has become their God. If, if pleasure becomes my true God, like so many Americans today, if it's all about getting what I want, I will end up destroying my body and my relationships. I'll find myself lying in a hospital bed one day with a wrecked body, wishing that I had loved ones there with me and thinking to myself, oh God, why did you do this to me? And the Holy Spirit will say, I didn't make you eat all those bacon cheeseburgers and sour cream enchiladas. I didn't, I didn't make you look at those images on your computer screen. I didn't make you flirt with those women who are half your age and not your wife. You let your appetite for pleasure rule your life, and this is where it took you. This is where the God of pleasure leads you. And this is why I said at the beginning, this message is for everyone, unbelievers and believers alike. And yes, our souls are saved if we trust in Jesus, but there's a whole lot of Christians. If they were honest, they'd say, I trust in Jesus for my eternal soul, but I don't trust him with my earthly life. I don't trust him with my right now happiness. 
I think I need these other gods for that. I think I need sex or power or money or politics or wealth or, or success or approval. So, so Jesus, you take care of my soul. I'll trust in these other gods to give me happiness and purpose and identity. And this is what happens. And this is why there's so many Christians in our world who are a walking denial of the truth of the gospel. There's so many Christians in this world that non-Christians look at and say, I don't want that. The gospel is not good news anymore when you're a walking billboard that says that Jesus leads to unhappiness. So I'm asking you, Christian, to be honest with yourself and say, what is really sitting on the throne of my life? Before you experience the plague that your God is leading you into, if your God is anybody but Jesus, I'm asking you to be honest enough with yourself to say, if I'm honest, this thing over here is way too important to me. Doesn't mean I have to get rid of it, especially if it's my family, right? Family can be an idol too, but I need to put it in its proper place and I need to exalt Jesus and worship and serve him alone. He is the one and only. God wanted us to understand that. And then finally, number three, he is the God who saves. Now, let me just say one more thing about our squeamishness about this story and our, our reticence to believe these things actually happen. Because there are some Christians who really literally say, I just can't believe it happened that way. It's the Old Testament. They didn't understand. No, this is God's word. And there are parts of it that are uncomfortable. But one of the things I think, and I, I came to this a few years ago, is I really think it's only we who live in America and have known nothing but freedom who have a hard time with this story. See, if you've ever been oppressed, if you've ever been enslaved, maybe if you've actually been abused, and some of you have, you resonate with this. But otherwise, if you, like most of us, have lived a life of freedom and abundance, it's hard to understand this. The Israelites of that day, they didn't look at the devastation of Egypt and think it was sad. They looked at it and said, this is our God fighting for us. Black Americans 150 years ago when the Civil War hit, when our nation tore itself apart, I'm not saying they rejoiced to see Americans killing Americans, but they did say, we've been praying for this day to come. We've been praying for the day that our freedom would arrive. It's different when you're going through the oppression. And by the way, just as a side note, if you want some proof that there is a God, look at the existence of the black church today. Because you know where the black church came from? It came from out of slavery. And if you would have said to me before it ever happened that thousands of Africans would be brought to this country against their will and treated like animals by people who claim to be Christian, and then many of those people would become Christians themselves, I would have said, no way, that's not the way it works. But that's who God is. He saves when we don't think it's possible. He is the God who saves. And those Christians in their slavery would work hard all day and at nighttime, when their masters had gone to bed, they'd sneak out of their houses and they'd meet under brush arbors and they'd sing songs to Jesus and they'd pray and they'd recite scriptures to one another because they weren't allowed in the white churches. Or if they were, they were told to just sit down and be quiet. And a lot of those songs, if you look back at them, I mean, those songs became the basis of black gospel music today. If you listen to some of those songs, most of them come from the book of Exodus. Why? Because the book of Exodus is about God rescuing his people. And when the president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, got up at his second inaugural address, he was one of the few people who understood 
made what I think is the greatest speech ever given by an American president. Go look it up today. It'll inspire you. It's more of a sermon than a speech. He essentially said, this war that we're engaged in right now is God's judgment on us because we did this to our fellow man. He is making us pay the consequences for what we did. And Lincoln even says, it looks like it's winding down. I hope it ends soon. But if God wills that it lasts another hundred years, then all we can say is his, his judgments are true and righteous altogether. You see, you've got to be oppressed to understand that. And we're not. And so we have sort of a peculiar privilege of finding these stories offensive. But the people who are hurting, again, if you've ever been abused by someone, if you've, if you've been the, uh, the victim of something, an injustice, you look at this and you say, yeah, God's justice is coming. He is the God who rescues. He is the God who saves. But he doesn't just save Israelites. See, this is the part of the story a lot of people miss. God, from the very beginning, said, I am going to make myself known to the Egyptians. Did he succeed? Well, I want you to notice this. This is a little detail that most people miss. In chapter 12, verse 38, after Pharaoh says, get out of here, and the Israelites get their wealth from the Egyptians, and they pack up, and they leave, it says this in 1238, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. What is a mixed multitude? It just means there were some non-Israelites who went on the exodus. And I'm assuming that most of those non-Israelites were Egyptians. In other words, there were some Egyptians who said, okay, you've got me. The gods I worship don't exist. I'm going to worship this God. I'm not staying here where these false gods reign. I'm going to go with the Israelites and their God wherever he leads. And I don't know where I came from. I call that salvation. I call that getting saved. I know that's a New Testament term, but when you turn away from your old gods and you turn to the one true God, I think that's getting saved. And that happens in the book of Exodus because God wasn't just out to save the Jews. He was out to save anybody who would come to him. And we see, we see, I didn't bring it out, but in, in, the, in the plague of the hailstorm, when Moses and Aaron said, look out because here comes a hailstorm, the scriptures tell us that some of the Egyptians actually went out and got their animals, the animals that were still left, and brought them inside so they would be rescued. They had begun to believe. And the Bible doesn't say this, but I'd be willing to bet that those same Egyptians and maybe even more on the night of the Passover took the blood of the lamb and painted it over the doorposts of their homes. And so they were delivered as well. All I know is this, anybody who turns to the Lord, no matter their race, that person is saved. And it happens in the book of Exodus. Now, here's what we know for sure for us. 1,300 years after the Exodus, 2,000 years before today, the Son of God was nailed to a cross on a hillside in Jerusalem. And just like it went dark for three days in Egypt, for three hours in Jerusalem, it was dark from 12 noon until three. And at the end of that dark period, the Son of God cried out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Just like that darkness in Egypt was a darkness of the soul, this was the Son of God being ruptured from the Trinity. This was the Son of God experiencing the fullness of the wrath of His Father in that one moment. This was God Himself bringing the plagues upon Himself so that you and I could go free. You have to read the book of Exodus in light of the cross. Because in Exodus, we see the plagues fall so that God's people could go free. In the cross, we see the plagues fall on God so that all people who believe can go free forever. 
And it answers that question. What kind of God is this? At the cross, you see, he's not a God of violence. Because he could have destroyed every person there. He let them kill him instead. He's not a God of ruthlessness, except he is ruthlessly seeking the salvation of everyone who wants to follow everyone who recognizes their sin. He's a God who would rather die for you than live without you. That's who he is. So when you are in danger, when you are discouraged, when you don't know what else to do, who else should you call? Why would you call anyone else but this God?